Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Some everyday habits can make a big difference when it comes to your health and well-being. It's important to think of safety both inside and outside of your home. Stay safe out there, tonight on Call with the Prairie Dock. Hello, I'm Dr. Deborah Johnston, tonight's Prairie Dock. This season, we continue to bring our viewers trusted health information from health professionals within your own communities. Thank you for joining us again. Tonight, we are discussing what we need to do to stay safe. Joining us in the studio here in Brookings are Dr. Thomas Lambert from the Center for Family Medicine in Sioux Falls and Dr. Jamie Halverson from Brookings Health System. Welcome. I'm so glad you guys are with us tonight. So, um, Jamie, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do, because it's a little different than a lot of our guests here on Prairie Dock. Yeah, so I grew up in central South Dakota and I was by a small town called Presho. And I decided I wanted to go into occupational therapy when I was in college at South Dakota School of Mines and Technology in Rapid City. Um, it was about 2011 I think and I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do in the medical field. I knew I wanted to do something and to help people um, but a, a particular family incident uh, my dad had a stroke um, at that time and I just saw the benefits of what occupational therapy could do for my family and particularly for my dad and I just thought it was so, so neat that we could help people do what they want and need to do and to regain those skills to be able to do those things once again. So that's kind of where I, how I kind of got into occupational therapy. I went to University of South Dakota and graduated in 2014 with my master's and then in December of 2016 with my doctorate. And I have been an occupational therapist for the past um, almost 10 years. Fabulous. And yeah. you kind of filled in our viewers on what an occupational therapist is. They're problem solvers who help yep. people figure out how to do the things that are harder to do than, than yes. they used to be. So mm -hmm. fantastic. Tom, tell us about yourself and how you came to medicine. So I took the less traditional route. <clears throat> Coming out of high school, I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And I ended up going into computers and realized that that field wasn't for me. <clears throat> I wanted to do something that was more personal, that helped people in a much more general sense. So after some introspection, I ended up applying for the Omaha Fire Department. And in 2004, I was hired on the Omaha Fire Department where I had the privilege and honor of serving for about, oh, almost 15 years. And during that time, I was exposed to a lot of EMS calls and became a paramedic and that led me down the medical path and <clears throat> during that time I was able to see a lot of different pathologies and meet with a lot of different physicians and I thought from paramedicine I was going to go to emergency medicine and I went through the application process 
a few times, didn't get immediately into medical school, transitioned into a uh, foreign school in the Caribbean, went to Baltimore for my clerkships, and then ended up coming back to the Midwest for my residency at Center for Family Medicine in Sioux Falls. So you had really quite a life before <laughs> you went to medical school, uh, and a lot of really particularly for the topic for tonight, really relevant experience. So everybody, give us a call, call in your questions. Before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions about hazards in your home and in your life. We look forward to answering your questions. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225. Send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we don't get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for our newest Prairie Doc publication. The winner will be announced at the end of the program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your questions. Let's get started, guys. I'm excited about this. So um, we have an individual who wants to know how aging affects somebody's safety. That's a great question for our occupational therapist because yes. that's something you deal with a lot. Yeah, I, I work with a lot of older adults whom I love dearly. Um, but as we age, there are particular systems in our body that just don't quite function the way that they do when we're younger. Our balance, our eyes, um, just, just the way that we maybe even socialize with people. And those are all things that can affect the way that you function in your day-to-day -day life. If your balance, you know, if you're having falls, if your vision, if you, if you can't see it well enough to take your pills or to see, you know, to cook, those are all different things that would be safety concerns that we'd want to look for in the home when we go, when we go out um, and see those people. And are those things that you're just kind of stuck with? No, at times there you can have some of those skills be remediated or there are ways as an occupational therapist that I look at to adapt or modify, make things easier, um, change the lighting in your home, making sure that fall hazards such as rugs or pets even can, can be a, <laughs> a, a popular one that sometimes people don't think about. Just changing, maybe changing a few things in the home environment can make that much more of a difference in the person's ability to stay safe, prevent falls, and to remain in their home for as long as they can. Always a very important thing. I think everybody wants to stay in their mm -hmm. home as long as possible. Yeah. Uh, uh, we have, oh, this is a great question. Um, a caller from DeSmet staying, I don't want my child to sleep over at a home that has unlocked guns. This is something we were talking about yeah. even before this. Um, how, can, how can I as a parent address that big question before my child goes over? Tom, what, what advice do you have for a parent who feels awkward but thinks that this is a really important question? 
Well, I think it's important to have an open relationship with the parents of the child of where your parent, where you're staying at. And I, I have two children of my own, and when my boys want to stay over at another house, and whether they be avid hunters or they have guns in their house, I always ask if they have their guns locked up. Simply because if it's hunting season and they have their guns out, then I want to make sure that my boys are safe. And it's worth maybe a little bit of discomfort and maybe a little bit of the other parents saying, well, of course the guns are locked up, or yes, the ammunition's locked up. Yes, we're safe parents. We're not putting your child in danger. And it's worth the chance that it's awkward because it's your child's safety. I, I, I think it's just the opportunity to have an open conversation to have with someone. And then if that leads to more conversations down the line and you can just normalize the conversation by just having the conversation and keep those lines of communication open, I think you have a better opportunity to keep your children safe in a healthy way. Now, obviously, if the parents fire back and they get very offended, then it's not going to be a healthy situation. But at the same time, then you know that that may not be a house that you want your children to stay over at. Because if you're unclear whether or not it's safe, then that's not a house that you want your children at. I'll often um, have conversations <laughs> with my patients about firearms and um, I'll have that conversation with the adults at their own visits mm -hmm. because it's important for adults as well. Um, and they will sometimes tell me that, oh, well, Johnny knows not to, not to pick up that gun. And then I'll see Johnny for his kindergarten checkup. And I'll say, so Johnny, if uh, you're playing at your friend's house and, and you find a gun, what do you do with that gun? And the child's usually quiet, and they'll say, well, do you pick that gun up and take it to an adult? Yep, that's what I do. And you know, you, you can, as the parent, have those conversations over and over and over mm -hmm. again. But just like you tell your children every single night, brush your teeth. No, you have to brush your teeth. Mm -hmm. Did you brush your teeth? No, your toothbrush isn't wet. You yeah. didn't brush your teeth. Those messages need to be reinforced over and over and over again, and you shouldn't think that your child really does know what to do because they are going to forget in the moment. They need that constant reminder. So ask the question. It is really important and it's okay to ask that question. Of course. And yes. we make, I mean, the toy industry makes guns fun. Yes. There's gel blasters out there. There's Nerf guns out there. And they're, they're obviously fake guns. But they're still guns. Yes. And there's video games. There's, there's and they may be obviously fake to us. Yeah. You know, we as the adult may say, oh, well, there's a red cap. That's not a real gun. But the child doesn't necessarily no. have that discriminating higher level <laughs> function to be able to say that is real, that is not real. And they really need that guidance from us. So it's a very, very good and very important question. And how about for adults, Jamie? What do you, what do you think when you go into the home and looking at gun safety? To be honest, I make sure that they have, if they do have guns, that they have a safe, that they keep them locked up. 
um, that they keep their ammunition separate from their from their guns. That's very important. Um, and just having that conversation is so important. It's one that, to be honest, I don't ask a lot about, but in reflecting on our conversations this evening, I think it's something that's definitely an important talking point. It is, I think, because even if you're going into the home of an older person who's had a stroke, they have grandchildren, right. they have nieces and nephews who might bring children over. Um, and adults are not immune from gun at either accidents right. or um, impulsive decisions. And another, um, yeah, another thing, if they've had a recent illness or an injury or a stroke or something that might impair them um, to the point where I feel like that's not safe for them, then I would definitely make that recommendation. Yeah. Have them talk to their physician, have them, you know, have further assessment to see if that's even safe. Because there's an awful lot of those kinds of illnesses that can spark depression, can right. impair judgment. Um, you know, people can have bad days and bad mm -hmm. moments, and if there's a condition that might make you more impulsive, either a, a beer or mm -hmm. having had a stroke or something else like that. Um, you know, a bad, weak moment can lead to catastrophic events, and yeah. we need to try to make it a little harder to have those moments. And there's some evidence that shows that having a brief intervention and addressing it, saying, just pointing out that this person is having depressive episodes and asking, are you in a moment of despair? Are you suicidal? Are you thinking about taking your life? Do you have a plan? And if they do have a plan, does it involve the firearm? And then once you address it, then asking them if they're willing to separate themselves from the firearm and put it into a safe storage situation that has a positive effect on their overall life and their treatment back to normalcy and back to overall mental health, as opposed to feeling uncomfortable and not addressing the situation, and now your patient commits suicide. And ultimately, the lethality of the means in which the patient is able to, to uh, attempt suicide is directly proportional to the success of that suicide attempt. And guns are by far the most lethal means. Yeah, and we're a hunting culture. Yeah. We're a gun culture here in South Dakota. They are everywhere and people have guns yeah. and that's okay. We just have to make sure that they have them safely. That's a very important thing. What other things do you look for in the home, Jamie, when you're doing your home visits? and? Yeah, so primarily what I am looking at is how, how the patient is interacting and moving about safely in their home. Primarily it would be the bathroom is a common area where patients could have falls. So I look at their, their bathtub, their toilet, to see if there's any type of adaptive equipment or things to make it easier for them to get in and out, to get on and off of the toilet, grab bars, um, shower chairs, those types of things to help help them be safe, um, even various surfaces throughout their home. So going from tile to carpet or stairs even is a huge one that we like to make sure that the patients are safe on. 
um, all of those things can contribute to falls, can contribute to you know, your inability to function safely in your home. And so those are some of the bigger things that I look at when I'm going to a patient's house. And even when I see patients and outpatient, I, I always ask about those things too. Even though I'm not physically in the environment, it's important for me to good, get a good picture in my head of what their environment is like and how I can maybe help to adapt that. Anything in particular that you think of in the home? So for me, I think of, and this is a throwback to the past life, <laughs> things like exits, smoke alarms, carbon monoxide alarms, overburdening individual outlets, mm, that's extension a good one. cables, or using too many like uh, power strips, or taking a very thin gauge extension cable and trying to plug in an appliance to it and now that cord gets hot and then you throw a rug on top of it and then mm -hmm. that gets hot and now you have a source for ignition because now you have a portable fridge next to the powered chair that's powered <laughs> both by the power strip that's by this one plug yeah and then you're setting yourself up for fire from someone that's limited mobility and gets stuck in a fire Another thing I think about safety-wise, and I talk to parents about it all the time, that I don't know that a lot of providers think about it, is closing doors at night. Each door, whether it be a hollow core or solid core door, will hold back a fire from a room for one to two hours. Now, it may not hold back all the smoke, but the contents of a house will go up and flash within three, four minutes which means that a room that is free flowing in fire will get to 900 to 1200 degrees in three to four minutes. Mm -hmm. Because of the materials we use today versus 50 years ago, which were natural materials, solid timbers, now it's all plastics, polyurethanes, much higher energy sources. Close the door, you protect yourself a whole lot better. And this is why smoke alarms are so important. Place them in the hallways outside of bedrooms the sound wakes you up. People have the misconception that smoke, the smell of it, is going to wake you up. What ends up happening is the carbon dioxide and the carbon monoxide put you into a deeper sleep. You get knocked out, and then you end up dying, succumbing to smoke. So those are types of things that I think about for home safety on a regular basis. I learned something tonight. That's fantastic. Thank you. No problem. In 2022, there were 3,895 crashes on South Dakota roads, according to the South Dakota Department of Public Safety. Out of all those crashes, 63 were fatal because people weren't wearing a seatbelt. Trooper Brian Schultz shows the proper way to wear a seatbelt and how to try to minimize those fatal crashes to zero. Pinion should be the first thing you do once you get in the vehicle. So if you just want to hop in here for me. Okay. So as far as properly putting on a seatbelt, there's two parts to it. The shoulder harness here will go across your shoulder, just like this. So if you want to clip that in there for me. Okay, so shoulder harness here is one portion of the statute in South Dakota. The other one here is a lap belt. These are both required as far as properly wearing the seat belt. So if the seat belt is worn here behind the back, 
that would be improper use of the seat belt, which you are subject to a citation at that point. Um, the point of the shoulder harness is one, to keep you from your upper torso from going forward when there's impact. The airbag is here, so it's gonna protect you from the airbag coming back. And then sometimes we see it as where people will clip it behind and then they will just wear the shoulder harness. Again, in a high-speed impact, this isn't gonna keep you in the vehicle. The lap belt is what's gonna keep you inside the vehicle. So again, it's important to remember, first thing you get in the vehicle, properly put the seat belt on, utilizing both the lap belt down here and the shoulder harness up here. Let's say we have a backseat passenger. Um, they're under 18 years old. The same rules apply to a front seat passenger. Um, they're required to be seat belted in. The only people in the back seat that are not required to wear a seat belt would be an individual 18 years or older. Um, then it's up to them and they are not subject to a citation. But again, anybody in the back seat that's under 18 years old, again, is gonna put it on the exact same, the shoulder harness over the shoulder, the lap belt secured around the, the waist, and then clipped in just like it was in the front there. So proper use here again, both, um, both parts of the, the seat belt are utilized. Um, we have snow in this, in our city here, you know, um, the roadways get very poor. Um, the likelihood of you rolling, especially in the winter time, um, when there's snow in the medians and ditches is pretty high. We see it all the time. Um, so just your overall safety to, to get to point A to point B safely. It's such an easy thing to do. Put your seatbelt on, um, follow the rules of the road, and it, it's going to increase your safety to get home. So Tom, when can a young person sit in the front seat? When they can drive. <laughs> you know, the safest yes. place, the safest place for any of yeah. us is in the back seat. Yeah. And actually I mean, that's, that's the rule I gave my kids. Yeah. Is that as soon as you're able to drive, and that depends on what state we happen to be in living at the time, because we move around a little bit, and that's when you can be in the front seat. Be in seat. the front seat, yeah. Um, and actually, rear facing is safest even for us, yeah. but uh, there's no way I'm, I can't drive backwards, so you know. Um, but uh, there's no hurry to get those kids. As long as they can fit in that rear facing car seat, keep them there. Yeah. You know, and if you're one of the unlucky ones on the train, facing backwards, just remind yourself this is the safest place mm -hmm. if we crash. Mm -hmm. so, not a bad thing. We've had some good questions come in, so um, let's get to some of those. Uh, Jamie, uh, something you had mentioned a little earlier, I think one of our, our watchers picked up on, pets are wonderful company, but do you see increased falls due to the animals? I've had a few patients that have had falls because their you know, pets have been around their feet. They may not see them, they may, you know, the pet may come inadvertently and kind of go between the feet and accidents happen. And yes, pets are a wonderful sense of support and um, just being able to care for them and have someone with you if you're an older adult that lives alone. But really making sure that when you're moving around in your home, whether that be on your own two feet or when you're using a walker, really be aware of where those pets are at to help prevent a fall. 
any other tips for pet safety and preventing falls with your pets? Making sure that wherever the pet's food dishes are, their water dishes, making sure that that's accessible. Sometimes we see older adults with those things on the floor and bending over to reach to, to take care of those things can be a fall hazard as well. So we might adapt to where we place the food dishes on an elevated surface or use reachers or other types of devices to help them to reach a little bit safer so they're not bending over. Yeah, because that companionship is really it's very important. Those, yes, those I can't tell you how many of my patients that mm -hmm. pet is is the joy of their of life. Course. And yes, it's very very important. Um, here's a caller who wants to know how do I keep my loved ones safe from falls when I don't live with them? Tom, do you have suggestions for? Well, I think you have to assess or have someone assess what their abilities and capabilities are and what their assistance needs are. <clears throat> and this is... Someone like Jamie. Yeah. Where <laughs> I, put in, I put in orders for <laughs> OT to assess and OT comes out and magic happens, which I've learned the big difference as I've been changing professions is that I put in orders and magic happens. It, because that's really what you guys do is that you guys nurses and OT and PT and all this all the other support and ancillary services and and people behind the scenes they end up doing a lot of the hard work and and, and really a we lot get of the magic the credit. and we get all the, the we, yeah. not all the credit but we get a lot of the credit when you guys really deserve most of the credit um, so yes, first I would say they need a, a thorough assessment of what their abilities are, as well as what their living situation is, which is what I think we've been talking about pretty thoroughly here. And then if they're in an unsafe living situation, then they either need a caregiver that is commensurate with their abilities and capabilities, or they need to change their living situation. That might be a like a skilled nursing facility or a full-time care facility. It, and a lot of times this is a very difficult transition for families. Mm -hmm. It's very emotional. The, yeah. the, they may be in a house that they've lived in their entire life and they're going to have a hard time letting go. And they may not be ready to let go, but it's in their best interest, safety-wise, to maybe make that transition. And that's a conversation that needs to be had and then rehad multiple times before the loved one hurts themselves seriously. And it has to come from multiple angles. It has to come from OT, from PT, from the physician, from nursing staff. Everyone. From the son, the daughter, the, son, yes. the, the, it takes the team. Yeah. To, it takes the team. It's a very difficult thing to hear and as human beings we're really good at not hearing difficult things. Yes. Yes. Um, we have a caller who wants to know, um, where was that question? I thought that was a good one to go to next here. Uh, about radon, how important is it to monitor radon on our homes and what are its effects 
And how do I know that that radon mitigation company is reliable? Tom, this is a great question for the fire expert. <laughs> so radon is, is a uh, radioactive particle that can collect in your respiratory tract and cause respiratory problems over time. Um, radon mitigation companies and radio, radon detection systems should be reputable. You should be able to look them up and, and trust that they have uh, a, a reputation and they meet the standards. And when they put the system in <clears throat> and do their mitigation services, they should meet, I, I'm not sure what the actual uh, um, certification that they have to uh, qualify for is that they have to meet, but if you have a radon issue or you think that you may have a radon issue because you have chronic respiratory issues or children have respiratory issues in the basement, it's worth getting it checked and having a mitigation system put in because you don't want to have a lifelong uh, respiratory issue and some uh, lifelong pulmonary fibrosis or restrictive lung disease associated with damage from radiation building up in your pulmonary tract. It's an important thing and we see a lot of it around here. Yeah. So older older buildings and basements and that. So um, we have a caller who has balance issues and they want to know would a cane be helpful or what else could they do? Jamie. I would say an assessment by, first of all, talking to your primary care physician and having that conversation about what what exactly is happening, why are you off balance, really getting down to the root of maybe what is causing that issue. Um, and then if it is indicated, having a physical therapy or occupational therapy assessment to assess how how is your balance right now, how maybe is your vision or your vestibular system playing a role in your balance as well and then having that professional um, figure out what would be the best type of assistive device for you, whether that be a cane. Um, there's various types of walkers too that would maybe be helpful for the person, but really having that assessment and having the, the therapist's eyes on what is happening I think is very important to have. We had another question come in. I think this is, uh, you mentioned PTOT. What is your elevator speech for what's the difference between PT and OT? As an occupational therapist, what I like to focus on is helping people restore or relearn or maybe even learn those skills that they're having trouble with. We like to think about simple things like activities of daily living. So that would include basic things like getting yourself dressed, how you do getting in and out of the shower, on and off of the toilet making meals, how are you able to perform your job, your actual job duties, um, getting out to the grocery store, those types of things. We, we have a, our, our special OT glasses, as we like to say. <laughs> we, we have a special, um, a, a special, I guess, vision or things that we like to look out for um, and really how those different systems and when a person has trouble with their different systems, how it affects their day-to-day -day life. And Tom, what, what does a physical therapist do? How is that different from what Jamie does? A uh, physical therapist will work more on strengthening exercises and augmenting the, their current abilities and, and really working on um, their overall uh, ability to do 
individual activities, whether it be restorative as far as like range of motion and um, all the other activities as far as, like if you have, we'll take something specific. If you injure your shoulder and you want to have full restorative range of motion and then get to the point where you have full strength and you're able to do, get back to working and doing heavy exercise, physical therapy will work on the strengthening exercise of those individual muscles that were injured in that exercise or injured in that, that actual activity. So physical therapy helps restore what your body can do. Occupational therapy does that, but more does, how can I do it anyway? Mm -hmm. Adapting or modifying, definitely. That's right. As we were discussing earlier, guns are an integral part of daily life in South Dakota and in our neighboring areas, whether they're used for hunting or trap shooting or anything else. Ensuring safe storage is paramount, especially when children are involved. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower discusses home gun storage with a Brookings police officer. Jory Hart is a Brookings police officer who shares the correct way to properly store guns in the household. So you either want to have a gun stored in a safe or a lockbox that's not accessible to unauthorized persons or young children, or having um, a device like a trigger guard, something that protects it from um, being just grabbed out of a, off of a whim and um, used in, uh, in an appropriate manner. Officer Hart says when she gets calls that an accidental discharge happened, she must ensure everyone in the immediate area is safe. Those accidental discharges can be prevented by following a few basic rules. Making sure that when you're handling any kind of firearm, that you're following the basics of firearm safety. You know, making sure that every weapon that you handle is going to be um, unloaded until it's time to use it. Making sure that you're pointing it in safe directions at all time, um, things like that. Officer Hart says when having a gun in a home, that weapon should be in either two places. You should either carry it on your person if it's going to be your at-home carry weapon, or you should have it locked away in a safe, a lockbox, have a trigger guard on it, something like that. So that way um, you don't ever have a firearm that's laying out in the open that anybody like a child or an intruder or even a family member who doesn't know basic gun safety could access it. She also educates people to store ammunition separately and to make sure weapons are locked up and out of reach of anyone who may be in the house. Anybody that sees a firearm laying open could have access to it, whether they have good intentions or not. And that's where I try to educate people. If you're going to have a firearm in your home, you need to be cognizant that you can't have it laying on a bedside table with the mindset that you're gonna grab it when an intruder comes. Officer Hart ends by letting people know it is a person's right to have their guns in the household, but also their responsibility to protect them. So having guns in the household is absolutely your right, but gun safety is also your responsibility. So if you're going to have guns in the home, um, you just need to make sure that the people who are able to access those guns or those firearms have the basic safety um, background and knowledge before they go near them and touch them and handle them.
Well, guys, we've had a lot of questions come in, so let's see how many we can get to here. Um, we have a caller from Custer, West River, asking for hints on improving their balance. Jamie, um, obviously, this is not somebody that you've had the opportunity to assess. What general things might we tell people to help improve their balance? If you're needing any type of assistive device or if you're feeling like even walking in your home is difficult, um, I would say, first of all, again, like I said, talk to your primary care physician because there could be a wide variety of things that could be going on. Um, in terms of hints to help with balance, making sure you have various grab bars throughout your house so that you can, for instance, get into the, into the home safely if you have stairs, um, making sure those railings are sturdy. Having a therapist assess for um, you know, safety with an assisted device hints for for helping with balance um, yeah those would be those would be it <laughs> it kind of depends to, on what right. kind of medical problems might impact somebody's balance Tom so there's there's a plethora of them um, something as simple as neuropathy not even being able to if you get neuropathy bad enough that you can't feel the ground that can affect your balance because you don't know whether or not you're stepping on a bump stepping on flat ground stepping on air because you just can't feel the ground uh, something as simple as an ear infection can throw off your vestibular system. If it gets bad enough, you lose your sense of, of balance because the semicircular canals no longer are working properly and that helps us understand our proper place in space and, and if we are in our proper place and we become nauseated at times and we just don't have our balance anymore. Strokes. If your blood pressure is yes. too low, if you've got a bad knee, or a medication, there's there's so many reasons. Dehydration. Dehydration. If your balance is a problem, come talk to your yes. doctor. Odds are we're going to send you to someone like Jamie or a physical therapist and, and get you on your way to being safe. So, um, We have a caller who has someone in the home with dementia and wanting to know if there's a health professional that can come in and help or a service that does this. Tom, what do you do to help your patients with dementia be safe in their homes? Well, it depends on where I'm seeing them at as far as in their pathway of care. Have they seen a neurologist? Have they had an assessment? Are they, this is the first time I've ever seen them? Is there, are they a new patient? and where they at as far as their overall treatment. Because a lot of times, if this is the first time they've been diagnosed with dementia, it's, it's a much more difficult proposition because sometimes the family sees it, but the patient doesn't. Which is part of the disease. It is. You know, dementia uh, impairs your judgment and your ability to recognize what's going on. And so then I try to help the family understand that don't, if you can do anything to help your family member not deviate from normal uh, patterns, it will help them not get confused. But really, if they need to be with someone at all times, because they're going to get confused and they're going to wander off. And at least in when I was doing my clerkships, we would have pretty regular silver alerts where someone with dementia would get confused while driving and they would take a wrong turn and then they would drive off, they would take a left instead of a right, and then they would just be lost and they just keep driving and driving and driving. So I'd have a very frank conversation with them 
and they would usually not be very receptive, but then I'd talk with the family members and enlist them and then really use them as the shared decision-making process to say that this is not a safe situation. Jamie, what about driving in dementia or other kinds of challenges that people may face? Are there any resources that might be helpful? Definitely, yeah. There, I believe in Sioux Falls at Sanford, there is a driving assessment um, clinic and it was, a, it was actually an occupational therapist that does the assessment. They assess your reaction time, your attention, um, you know, your ability to problem solve, what things that might come up in, in while you're driving. And then they would take you on an on-road assessment after they determine that you're safe with the in-clinic portion um, to just see what your abilities are. And on the, on the flip side of that, if a patient is able to, deemed able to drive, there's plenty of adaptations that could be beneficial for people. Adapted vehicles, adapted driving controls, those type of things. So people that have physical challenges, mm -hmm. there may be ways that the vehicle right. can be adapted yes. so that they can still mm -hmm. safely drive. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a it's a really, really valuable tool. Very, for, very, very valuable. Is it, is it safe for this person mm -hmm. still to drive? And what can we do to make it safer exactly. for this person to drive? So um, we have a caller from Rapid City wondering if laminate or carpet flooring is safer in preventing falls? I would say probably laminate would be safer. You're on a, a surface um, that's, well, I guess it is smooth, but <laughs> a carpet, I oftentimes think of people getting, you know, if they have rugs or if, if their carpet is high pile, that might be a, a good opportunity for your foot to get caught or, you know, get tripped up that way. Especially those older folks who have a shuffling harder time feet. with shuffling yep. their feet. Does it matter from a fire standpoint? Or is it more a matter of what the material is that it's made from? I, I tend to agree that from a safety standpoint, I still think the laminate flooring is probably better overall. Just because carpet one has greater surface area, so if you drop something in it, there's a better chance for ignition. Whereas if you drop a match on a laminate floor, even if it burned all the way to the end of the match, it probably is gonna melt a little bit of laminate flooring, but it's probably not gonna ignite. Whereas if you have something that's a high pile of carpet, it'll probably ignite that piece of carpet, better chance for true ignition. I do want to say though too, if a person does have laminate, removing any type of throw rugs, yeah. that can be a huge fall hazard for people, especially if they're using an assistive device or maybe, I mean, maybe even if they aren't. Uh, just, mm -hmm. yeah. um, do occupational therapists help new mothers and families with home safety? And what should new parents be thinking about? Two-part question. Mm -hmm. 30 seconds for you, 30 seconds for you. <laughs> um, so I often, I see birth to three patients and in terms of evaluating the safety, yes, that's something that is number one on my list when I go in to see those patients. And birth and, to three is a program literally from birth to yes. age three to yep. help children with development and mm -hmm. uh, skills. Mm -hmm. Setting them up with resources if they aren't in a safe environment, um, helping them even maybe move to a different environment that is safer for them. What do you tell your parents at their first well baby visit? What do you talk about? So they need to baby proof their house, which means get all their outlets covered. Well, there's a lot of things I tell them, but if we're talking about home safety, they need to cover their outlets. They need to make sure that they have baby gates that are 
protecting stairs. Chemicals need to be up high. Cabinets need to be also baby-proofed. Um, if they do have firearms, keep ammunition and the uh, weapons themselves separate and locked in a way. And make sure that you have all medications also safely stored away from and not accessible to the child. And I think about safe sleep. Yes. Yeah, safe sleep, very important. Only give me 30 seconds though. I know, I know, <laughs> there's, just, there's just so much. I mean, yeah, we've I got, I don't know if we're gonna make it all here. Um, a caller asks, when should I, can, and I think this is a two-part question, when should I consider seeing an occupational therapist for their daily showers? And that's not really, you talk more about how right. to shower safely. Right, right. So if you were having trouble, first of all, you'd probably be at your primary care provider again and they would order us. So we would, we would come into the home and assess that situation. If you're even safe getting into your tub, if you're safe getting into your bathroom. Um, so we would, we would help you to, um, to adapt or modify if you are safe to, to do that safely. If we feel that you aren't safe to do that, we would recommend you know having a family member come in to help you or um, home have, health bathing. Exactly. Somebody that can mm -hmm. help us or like that. Or an outside that. agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and we have a couple of, of really important things here. Uh, we have a caller who let us know that the hospital there in Madison had a program called A Matter of Balance which was an eight to 12 week session about how to be safe in your home. It's uh, covered, the cost is covered by a grant and they wanted us to uh, let people know about that and that's I great. didn't know about that. I think that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So thank you um, individual from Madison for calling in and letting us know about that so we can save, save that. Uh, we have a caller who made a comment about crystals in their ear that had migrated and physical therapy helped with their balance. That is an important yeah. source mm -hmm. of balance problems. And a caller who called in and said their basement flooded and now they're having health problems. Could mold be the problem, Tom? So the idea that mold, and this is the myth of black mold causing pulmonary hemorrhage, that mold that they attributed to pulmonary hemorrhage, you would have to lick in order to get pulmonary hemorrhage. It was like a slime mold. It was not an aerosolized mold. So yes, you can still have pulmonary problems, but that would be like a spore mold. That would be someone that's just allergic to mold. And so that would be the internal molds, the, the penicilliums and the, um, I can't remember the other in, inside mold. <laughs> yeah. But there's, there's two, um, aspergillium is the other inside mold. Um, just high concentrations of those. So you may be just a mold allergy person or just maybe an irritant just to you an as well. irritant. Yes. So, yes. Well, I can't believe how fast this time went. So thank you everybody for watching. Thank you guys for, for being here. The winner of our prize tonight is Nancy. Thank you, Nancy, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. And we'll be back after this. On Call with the Prairie Doc has been a leading source of health education for 21 seasons. Join us as we continue to provide health information based on science built on trust. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to access the entire Prairie Doc library today. I learned a lot of statistics back in medical school, many of which are outdated and long since forgotten. Few still haunt me though. 
One example, over 50% of seniors who suffered a broken hip would be in a nursing home or in their grave within a year. The odds are somewhat better today, but a hip fracture is still a very serious event, especially if your health or your independence is already compromised. We may be better at helping people recover, but the best strategy is not to break that hip in the first place. Another lesson that has stayed with me from those days involves a gentleman who had spent his weekend bailing hay despite his terrible back pain. He was able to do so with the assistance of handfuls of Tylenol and a beer or two at the end of each long hot day. Little did he realize that he was poisoning himself with all that acetaminophen. By Wednesday, he was on a ventilator in our ICU in need of a new liver. His story is still common. Acetaminophen toxicity is the most common cause for liver transplantation in the United States and the second most common cause worldwide. At appropriate doses, Tylenol is extremely safe. It's just really easy to exceed those doses if you aren't vigilant. I don't think any American makes it into adulthood without a story or two about a motor vehicle accident involving someone they knew. After all, between two and three million of our countrymen are injured on our roads each year. About 40,000 of us die, and many others find their lives permanently changed by the injuries they sustain. Nearly 200 Americans die every day from traumatic brain injuries, but even those who survive the initial event face a grim future. If their injury is severe enough to require an inpatient rehabilitation stay, an additional one in five people die within the next five years. Nearly 60% of the others face at least moderate disability. In 2019, unintentional injuries were the leading cause of death for Americans between the ages of 1 and 44, and the third leading cause overall. Poisoning, motor vehicle accidents, and falls account for the vast majority of those accidental deaths, with all other causes, including suffocation, drowning, and fire, making up about 15%. I think I'll keep nagging people about getting their calcium, about wearing their seatbelts and helmets, and about locking up their firearms. In fact, I'm going to nag you right now. Go check the batteries in your smoke detectors. Put your phone where it can't tempt you when you get behind the wheel. Slow down a little. Do your part to protect yourself, your family, and your neighbors. Let's keep ourselves and each other safe out there, people. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Thomas Lambert and Dr. Jamie Halverson, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about staying safe. 
On a special note, Prairie Doc is hosting an online Medicare informational session on November 29th from 11.30 to 1. Please head to our social media pages tomorrow on how, to see how to sign up for this free session. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online, and listen to us live most Wednesday mornings at 9.30 on KBRK in Brookings. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever podcasts can be found. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, Thank you for joining us for another episode of Health Information based on science, built on trust. Until next time, stay safe and healthy out there, people. U.S. veterans represent a special population of men and women who have served their country, many facing extraordinary health risks during their deployments. Veterans' health issues are clinically complex, and they can be a potentially vulnerable population. Veterans' Health, next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. Hi, my name is Ken Bartholomew, and I'm a member of the Healing Words Foundation. I'm a family practitioner, 45 years uh, in practice now, and uh, practiced in Falcon for 14 years and then moved to Pier, but I've been going back to Falcon for the last 30 years. Uh, once a week to help out up there and practice up there too. Where else can you get free non-biased medical education? And I stress that because it's non-biased. We don't take advertising. There's no drug company interference or pressure there. And it's uh, all science-based. It gives people information on anywhere from neurology to urology, GI, cardiology. They can get all kinds of information without having to travel, and it's free. Well, they're going to get a wealth of information on just about every topic throughout the year. We, we cover a little of everything throughout the year. A lot of people have benefited directly. They've, they've told me personally they've directly benefited by the information they got on the program. For more information or to donate, head to www.prairiedoc.org or you can send your donations to P.O. Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota 57006. And thank you for your support. Funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System. Ophthalmology Limited. South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians. Avera Heart Hospital. First Bank and Trust. 
Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Tell Communications.